The minute you have a gangster who has to perform a certain function in a melodrama, you're, you're, you're obliged to try and find something about him that doesn't make him identical with every other gangster and every other melodrama. Just as simple as that. There are two radio series produced in conjunction with Orson Welles' Pan American position. The first was called Ceiling Unlimited and focused specifically on aviation history and current affairs. It was sponsored by Lockheed and Vega Aircraft and aired on CBS beginning Monday, November 9th, 1942. The second was called Hello Americans. It sought to foster Pan Americanism by sharing first-hand stories. It began airing Sunday, November 15, 1942 on CBS. Carmen Miranda was the first guest. The opening show was built around Samba. The Columbia Broadcasting System presents Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater in a special series of broadcasts about the other Americas. This story, The Bad Will Ambassador, aired on December 27th. Hello, Americans. This is Orson Welles. It's two days after Christmas and a Sunday night at that. Do you feel as though your belt were trying to get a half Nelson on your waistline? Are you wondering where somebody who gave you something got it so you can take it back and exchange it for something you wanted instead? Has somebody in your household been heard to remark that it's been a nice Christmas, but she's glad it's over? Is your tree starting to shed? Yes? Yes. I don't care how many eggnogs you didn't have. You've got that Christmas hangover. Well, so have we. The incidents in the Mercury Theater of package-tying thumb, Christmas tree decorating, back strain, and shopper's feet is just as great as in your family. Frankly, the script for this broadcast didn't exist until last night. We were all sitting around staring at each other, our eyes glazed with Christmas cheer, numbly wondering how to get started. And there was a knock at the door. That's the best way I know to start a story. We won't stop for sound effects because you can imagine it. That uh, knock on the door. Somebody opened it and in came Mr. Martin Stone. Mr. Stone is a big man, and his mouth had a place in it for a cigar, but the cigar wasn't there. He introduced himself, and we gave him a drink, and he told us this story. Now we're going to try to tell it to you, the way we heard it. The story needs a name, so we'll call this one The Bad Will Ambassador. Stone, Martin Stone. Thanks, don't mind if I do. I'm an American representative of an export house with branches all over South America, Central America, Brazil, Argentina, Venezuela, Peru, Puerto Rico, Mexico. Business is good, could be better, but... Well, that's my business, to make it better. I didn't come here to talk about myself, though. I, I want to tell you... I'll tell you about him. Who? Don't ask me, just... Let me tell you what happened. I can't even say exactly what he looked like. Smallish, yet he wasn't so small. He wasn't young. He wasn't old either. Oh, his voice. It was soft. Like a soft breeze. The kind of voice that makes you think of your own voice. Like you're talking too loud or too hard. Still don't know his name. I looked it up, but wasn't in there. Guess it doesn't matter. 
Met him first in Buenos Aires about ten days ago. I had everything planned. Eight days to finish up my business in South America and get back home in time for Christmas and J.L.'s sales rally. Got to plan things if you want to get them done. Yeah, reservations on Pan American right through from Argentina to New York City. Uh, here, boy, grab these bags and weigh them. That's my plane. Yes, sir. Well, Senor Stone... We'd given you up for good. Never give up Martin Stone till the plane leaves the ground. Yes, senor. Never but, missed a uh, plane or a train in my life. No use putting that on the scales. Weighs 39 pounds and 14 ounces, exactly. Well, what's wrong? plane hasn't left, has it? Uh, Mr. Stone, uh, you see, we didn't think you were coming, and someone who has to get to Rio de Janeiro by tonight, well, we gave him your seat. Your what? Oh, we would not have done it, Mr. Stone, but... He is going to have Christmas with his family. I know. He's only nine years old, sir, and if he does not go on this plane, he will lose an entire... Wait day. a minute. Are you trying to tell me you want me to give up my seat? Oh, of course not, Mr. Stone. If you do not wish to, we told the dispatcher he is to take the little boy and his luggage off the plane. It will take only a moment. Oh, well, naturally, I hate to upset the youngster's plans, but after all, I got a little fellow of my own who's harder just about break if his daddy isn't back home for Christmas. Oh, that's quite all right, Mr. Stone. Is that the youngster there? Yes, Mr. Stone. Uh, hi there, youngster. Uh, no, I'm sorry to disappoint you. He understand English? No, Mr. Stone. He speaks only Spanish and Portuguese. Well, he's got plenty of time to get an education. Here, young man, you take this and buy yourself a pocket knife or a football or anything you want. Come on, won't bite you. Hey, what's wrong? That's when I first saw him. Standing there. Right in front of me. You see, he's very young and he would not understand. Yeah. Isn't my responsibility. Awful lot of kids in the world. Still, a man does hate to disappoint a kid, naturally. Naturally. Especially during the Christmas season. It's a pity you will miss the Argentine Navidad. Yes, yes, yes. Very interesting native customs, aren't there? I don't know. Give me Christmas back home in the States. My name's Stone. Uh, Indestructible Toys and Novelties. Here's my card. Leaving on this plane? No, I'm not. Would you believe it? They don't even have Santa Claus in this country. Uh, you're not an Argentinian, are you? No, I'm not. Always got to be careful. Got to use tact down here in these countries. Never know who you're talking to. Like I was saying, now, what's Christmas without Santa Claus? No Santa, no presents, no presents, no fun. Mr. Stone, here in the Argentine, the Christmas is very serious to them. Yeah, but what about the kids, Mr. Senor? I didn't catch the name. Senor, that is enough. Glad to know you. Merry Christmas. Have a cigar. Say, I'm sorry I still didn't get that name. Thank you, no, not at the moment. Uh, you know how it is, so many strange names down here. Just senor. Uh, yeah, but senor what? In the United States, it is mister. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Mister and senor, same thing, that's right. Uh, what are we talking about? Oh, yes, kids. Christmas and kids. Kids, yeah. <laughs> I got kids of my own and toys. Listen. 
We've got a line of toys. Yeah, the Argentine, they have a gift day. That's what I say. What can a kid get out of Christmas without Christmas presents? La adoración de los reyes. Beg your pardon? Los reyes are the three kings. Oh, yes. Oh, sure. They... Yeah, it's the wise men of the camel. Sure, the adoration of the king. Somebody's telling me. Now, you take Ecuador. Up there, they got a whole different idea. Oh, I've been there during Pascua. Sure. The Ecuadorians do it right. Regular Christmas trees, presents, kids hang up their stockings, just like in the States. And say, in Colombia, you know what the kids believe? Huh? They believe that Jesus himself brings them their gifts on Christmas Eve. Imagine that. And then there's Peru. Oh, I've been in Peru for Great Christmas. Country. In every home, they make a little old... Wonderful possibilities. I, I was in Lima once myself. Midnight mass. Interesting. Kids all cleaned up bright as a dollar. Carry whistles and things to imitate the calls of animals and birds. I got a real boot out of it. You in business, senor? Well, after a fashion. Oh, what's your line? Uh, I'm afraid my line is not so popular. Salesmanship, senor, that's what does it. You gotta sell these people, any people. Put a little chocolate on the pill. They'll eat it. And after the chocolate wears off? That was the first time I met him. I wished him a Merry Christmas and left him standing there. <laughs> Rio at 4.25, took a taxi to the hotel. Tonight, eh, Senor Stone? Come away. Uh, oh, that's right. They will receive your wire, Senor Stone. Your room is prepared for you. Bright people, these Brazilians. They know the answers, speak English, got an army. Yeah. Tell the boys uh, to take my... You were standing there. Yeah. The Senor... Stand there in the lobby with a smile on his face, though he's been waiting for me. It has always been true, but never more true than it is right now. The pictures you enjoy most are based on the most widely read novels. Recall Grapes of Wrath, Gone with the Wind, How Green Was My Valley, he, is, he was marvelous because he never played the obvious. He never directed, obviously. He always directed in some strange or blind way that you thought, well, that isn't right at all. But if you put your career in his hands, he loved to mold you the way he wanted. Whatever happens, do not open a door. Either door. And it was always much better than you could do yourself. And, of course, I love him dearly because he was very, very great to me. He was very kind to me. And he had great confidence in everything that I would do. Would you like to work with him again? Oh, adore to. What's that doing here? No one is allowed up here. Understand? No one. Get thee down. Get thee down. Jane, strange, almost unearthly thing. You that I love is my own flesh. Don't mock me. I go off for blush. It's you I want. Answer me, Jane, quickly. 
Say Edward, I'll marry you. Say it, Jane. Say it. I want to read your face. Read quickly. Say Edward, I'll marry you. I don't think that anybody, a comedian or an actor of any kind, says to himself at any time, I think I'm going to develop a style. I don't think he would know how to do that. I think you just find it. Innately, there's something that you do that you find out works for you. Some comedians talk very fast. They go from one joke to another joke to another joke, maybe topical humor. Now, I discovered when I first started to talk on the stage that that would not have been my style. My style was to talk on a subject and stay on the subject. Hey, it's Miss Harrington, Mr. Wells' secretary. Hello, Miss Harrington. Hello, Dennis. Good afternoon, everybody. Hello, slugger. <laughs> hmm. My, what an odd bed sheet. It has blue eyes. This is me. <laughs> this is me. I'm pale. You certainly are. I have news for you, Mr. Benny. Mr. Wells is about to pay you a visit. Orson? Orson's coming here to visit me? Yes. He'll be here shortly. Rochester, I want this room tidied up at once. Yes, Miss Harrington? I want a chair placed beside the bed. Yes, Miss Harrington. And put an X on Mr. Betty's forehead so Mr. Wells can spot him immediately. (laughs) Look, I'm not that pale. Now, Miss Harrington, would you mind sitting over there in the corner? We were just starting to rehearse our program. Rehearse without the master? Mr. Wells won't like it. Nuts to Mr. Wells. I know just how you feel, Daddy. (laughs) Well, I'll be darned. She's human. Attention, everybody. Mr. Wells is about to make his entrance. Mr. Wells, Mr. Wells. Come in. In early 1943, Orson Welles was in production alongside Joan Fontaine with 20th Century Fox for Jane Eyre. This is Orson Welles. Well, Wellesby! Although Welles enjoyed acting for the screen, he preferred live radio. In March, when Jack Benny took ill with pneumonia, Welles filled in as host of the Jack Benny program. Gee, you'd think he was Frank Remley or something, the way they're jumping around here. Jack returns on April 11th, but Orson isn't quite ready to let go. Well, Mary, it's nice to see you. How's Jack feeling today? I feel well enough to do my broadcast, brother. Wasn't that Jack's voice? Jack, where are you? Right here. They forgot to mark me. <laughs> Look, can't you see my big blue eyes? Oh, yes, they're gorgeous. Thank you. But you're so pale, Jack. Well, you see, Orson, it's been so cloudy lately, I haven't been able to get any sun. I sit out in my backyard every day, but nothing happens. I'll fix that. Miss Harrington, take a note. Yes, Mr. Wells. Get in touch with the Weather Bureau. The sun must shine tomorrow. <laughs> yes, Mr. Wells. See what I mean, Daddy? Hey, maybe he can do it. Oh, by the way, Jack, I noticed a lot of orange peels hanging on your clothesline. Is that to ward off evil spirits? No, Mr. Billingsley, my boarder, was making some juice. Now, if you'll excuse us for a few minutes, Orson, we'll go ahead with our rehearsal. Oh, I certainly don't mind if I stay and watch, do you? No, 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 not at all. Now, as I was saying, fellas, Don introduces me, then I come on... Uh, Pardon me, there doesn't seem to be a chair here. What? No chair? Mr. Wells doesn't have a chair. Oh, my goodness. Here, Orson, take mine. No, Orson, take my chair. Take mine. It's got a pretty cushion on it. Take my chair, Orson. It's peachy. Here, take the bed. (laughs) I'll go out and hang on the clothesline. (laughs) For heaven's sake. 
Now, let's get going with this rehearsal, whether Mr. Wells is standing, sitting, or floating around the room. <laughs> now, the first thing to do is... Orson, come down here! <laughs> He knows more magic. <laughs> now, the, the first thing to do is run over the dialogue. Run over the dialogue? Oh, no, that'll never do. No, 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 no. What do you mean, no, 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 Comedy, Jack, should never be rehearsed. Repetition destroys its sparkle and spontaneity. But also... The important look... elements of a variety program are the songs and music. Look, now, Dennis, also... I want you to run over your songs so we can get an idea of its length. Now... Wait a minute, Orson. This rehearsal is my business. You're not even going to be on the show. I know, but I shall be listening. It's about time we listeners had something to say. Sing, Dennis. <laughs> yeah, sing. I see what you mean, sister. never did anything that we thought was going to last. We never framed anything. We never started anything that we said. For instance, I've never gone to my writers and they never went to me. And it came to me and said, let's make you a stingy character. Let's make Love and Bloom your theme song. Let's have a feud between you and Fred Allen. See, if we'd have framed all of that ahead of time, it would have never worked out. It always started by an accident. By accident, we wrote a couple of stingy jokes. And then they got big laughs, so we, each week or every third week, we would put in a few stingy jokes. And before I knew it, I was a stingy man. You know the famous story that uh, George Burns did to Jack Benny? It had to do with Jeanette McDonald, did it not, Freddie? Well, I they don't know it. It's a wonderful story, and it shows you how you can psych somebody out. Apparently, uh, Jeanette McDonald and her husband threw lovely parties, but inevitably, before the evening was over, somebody would ask Jeanette McDonald to sing, which and she would. if they didn't... And if they didn't... Uh, she had somebody hired who would... Well, you know, because she wanted to sing. <laughs> so George used to say to Jack Benny, three days before the party, he'd say, Jack, when Jeanette McDonald gets up to sing at the party, don't laugh. It would be very embarrassing. <laughs> He'd call him the next day. Jack, you know, somebody's going to ask Jeanette to sing. Would be very, I would be very embarrassed if you laughed while she... Sure enough, so they're at the party and somebody says, Jeanette, would you sing a song? And Jack goes right out. It was all over. He was physically unable not to explode with laughter. I know that's true, as it sounds like George for one he thing. Was, yeah, he was, and, and Jack also was, you could get him quicker than anybody who ever lived. Was a great patsy for George. Oh, he was the, one of the only great comedians who really enjoyed other comedians. Right, he did. Do you think it'll do for the program? Well, Dennis, I think Mr. Benny should answer that question. After all, he's running a show this week. Darn right I am. 
Your song was swell, Dennis, but it's a little long. I want you to cut half a minute out. Cut? Half a minute? Cut of that beautiful ballad would ruin it. Might have said. Uh... <laughs> Tell you what, Dennis, I want you to add a half a minute Add? To you it. want him to add half a minute and destroy its musical climax? I never thought of that. I mean... uh, leave it alone, Dennis. Leave it alone? You want him to leave it alone and... Now, wait a minute, Oris. Orson? <laughs> Took him ten years to build up the name Orson Welles. I made it Oris in one second. <laughs> Look at Orson. What, what the heck do you want? I wish I knew. So do I. Look, Orson, it's getting you know, late. You mind? You know. <laughs> Look, Orson, I'm sorry I killed your gag there. Or I'm glad. I don't know which. There's a manuscript here on the table. Is it a screenplay? No, that's my autobiography, Orson. I've been working on the story of my life since I've been sick. Hmm, intriguing title. Jack Benny from Rags to Radio. Yes, I, I was going to call it The Loves of Jack Benny, but I haven't done so well. My. <laughs> this is a thrilling opening. I, Jack Benny, was born on a farm near Waukegan, Illinois, many years ago. It is thrilling, isn't it? It's a great day of great rejoicing on the farm. Chickens were cackling, cows were mooing, hogs were grunting, and father was cockeyed. <laughs> what a celebration. Young Jack Benny, from his very oh, early days... pardon me for interrupting, Orson, but we've got to get finished with our rehearsal. No, 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 this is interesting. Uh, go ahead, Orson. Go ahead. But, Jack, now, I, I, I've got to rehearse the sponsor's message yet. You've got to yet? Oh, yes, the sponsor's message. Well, Don... Don, as long as I haven't been on the show for five weeks... I thought we'd concentrate on me. Now, just a minute, Jack. You can't seriously believe that we listeners tune in to the Grape Nuts Flakes program every week just to hear about you. But Orson... Oh, of course not. We want to know how those toasty brown sweetest and nut little flakes are getting along. But Oswald... We want Orson. to know... <laughs> we, we want to know if they still... Now, you know I can't louse up the, the sponsors. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I got to pronounce great... <laughs> Well, the sponsors? Yeah! Oh! <laughs> we want to know if they still have that malty rich flavor and if they're still America's fastest growing flake cereal. But I Orson, look at I think that people want to know. Darn that nightshirt. <laughs> But Austin, after Don delivers his message, can't I talk about myself? Can't I tell people my cold is better? Jack, I wouldn't take any bows on that cold till you're strong enough to have a beautiful nurse. Oh, well, I'll, I'll tell him anyway. Well, well, and how's my little patient? Uh, shall we take that nasty cast off your leg today? <laughs> Doc, I'm not a cocker spaniel. Look, but as long as you're here, you can give me an aspirin. All this excitement has given me a little headache. An aspirin? Uh, here you are. Thank you. That'll be five cents, please. <laughs> Look, put it on my bill. Now, if I can just swallow the thing... Would you like to grease the track with a little cough medicine, Miss Benny? <laughs> I don't need any chaser. See, it's down. Say, that was a pretty, pretty big pill. It didn't look like an aspirin to me. Me neither. You neither? <laughs> You're the doctor. Well, you don't have to get so huffy about it. I just happened to give you a sleeping pill by mistake. What? You're lucky. It might have been a dog biscuit. <laughs> a 
sleeping pill? He, he gave me a sleeping pill. Gosh, I can't go to sleep. I got a, I got a show to do today. Remember, Don, you introduce me, and I'll come out and say, I'll say. Well, Orson, looks like you'll have to do the show today. I'll be glad to, Mary. Now, come on, everybody. Let him sleep. <laughs> Those pills are wonderful. I'm headed for Central Avenue. I came back for the cough medicine, folks. Then you're a member of the WIN, W-I-N-S, Women in National Service. And one of your big jobs is keeping the family well-fed in spite of wartime food restrictions. Well, your job will be a lot easier. Your kind indulgence, a miracle of the ancient East. With the fee received from Jane Eyre, he approached the War Assistance League of Southern California. His proposal, a big top spectacle, part circus, part magic show. Wells would be magician and director. Fiance Rita Hayworth was to be Wells' chief assistant, and Joseph Cotton would co-produce. We should like the assistance of two able-bodied, open-minded, clean-living young gentlemen to assist us in sewing Marlena Dietrich in half. It would be called the Mercury Wonder Show. Proceeds went to the War Assistance League, and servicemen entered free. The show rehearsed for 17 weeks. Wells tested almost 20 opening acts before he was satisfied. In May, just before previews began, Wells was declared 4F, unfit for military service. By June, the Mercury Wonder Show cast had grown to 31 people. Wells called it the biggest magic show on Earth. He put 40 grand into production, and MGM provided a Hollywood lot. The Mercury Wonder Show debuted on August 3, 1943. But after the first night, head of Columbia Pictures Harry Cohn forbade Rita Hayworth from continuing. She was busy filming Cover Girl and would have breached her contract if she continued. Wells brought in Marlene Dietrich. Well, she's uh, the most loyal friend that anybody could ever ask for. Her, her loyalty is uh, ferocious. Her professionalism is impeccable. She has a marvelous sense of humor. She was one of the all-time glamour people. And we did our magic show together, you know, for a long time. So we had a, not only a long friendship, but also a long professional association. A portion of the stage show was included in the 1944 variety film, Follow the Boys. The segment was directed by Wells, and he received no credit. Mm -hmm. Orson didn't. Orson could ride beautifully if he didn't have to work, uh, think about the treasury as far as that's concerned. I treasury. remember yeah. one time we were, we were doing the Wonder Show. Did he ever tell you about the Wonder Show that he did, the Magic, the magic show. show? Well, I played the Calliope outside and dressed all of the people and packed all the pigeons and all that kind of thing backstage. Yeah. And at the very end, he called the meeting to order because it goes Joe Cotton and Orson and I were the organizer of the Mercury Theater. Joe was president, I was vice president, and Orson was treasurer. And there was never any money in the treasury. <laughs> well, all of a sudden, Orson said, you know, we're $45,000 in the hole. 
And I thought of all the things that I was going to be sued for, you know, and I, oh, I was frantic. And it just so happened that Universal had a segment about a magician. I said, take it, Orson, take it, and ask for $45,000 and we'll get out of the hole. Which he did, and he got $45,000 and we were out of debt. But you see, Orson was like that. Thinking. Things that he that was paid for, he put right back into his work. Orson? Hmm? How do I know these are my legs? Have no fear. I will hypnotize her, and she'll know. The Wells segment in Follow the Boys was initially to be shot in four days, but Wells stretched filming to make sure the cast got extra pay. The Mercury Wonder Show was also broadcast over KMDR. The makers of Mobile Gas and Mobile Oil bring you Orson Welles. Good evening, good evening everybody This is Orson Welles Tonight the Mercury Wonder Show is pitching its tents At the Los Angeles Port of Embarkation in Wilmington And right here I'm sorry to have to make this announcement uh, But the guest star we originally planned to have with us tonight Just wasn't available at this time So we had to take somebody else I know this is a big disappointment to you, but it just couldn't be helped. So appearing with us tonight instead of Bela Lugosi is Lana Turner. Uh, see? Thanks for taking it like this. You fellas are really good sports. Well, I know why you feel this way about Lana. I guess you've heard what a good job she's been doing playing all the army camps. And not only just the big ones. Last week, Lana played a camp so small... The CO was an acting PFC. <laughs> well, we had a nice trip. We had a nice trip coming down here to the camp tonight. The officers were swell, particularly Colonel Herbert. We were very flattered. We've never had a colonel come to Hollywood to escort us to the camp before. Of course, we've never had Lana Turner on the program before. <laughs> I sat in the front of the car, and the colonel sat in the back next to Lana. It's the first time I've ever seen a colonel with barbecued eagles. <laughs> Just in a minute, we're going to bring you one of our regular Mercury G.I. fables, a little something starring the Metro-Golden-Mayor somebody, Miss Lana Turner, plus the celebrated Private Mulva Hill of See Here Private Hargrove, Dr. Keenan Wynn. But first, who's here but Johnny McIntyre? Well, here it is, folks. Sound Man's Holiday, or the case of the Cranky Crank Case. Listen. The car goes limping along the road. This episode featured Lana Turner. But it was Wells' femme fatale fiancé from Brooklyn that he was most interested in. Do you remember how you first saw her? Or oh, oh, certainly. And a full page in Life magazine. And I was in South America and I, I saw that picture and vowed that uh, I was going to see that girl. It was awfully hard to get her on the phone. Mm. Did you also vow that you would marry her? Yeah, and we were a long time together. I think I was lucky enough to be with her longer than any of the other men in her life. She is a dear person, and she was a wonderful wife and an extraordinary girl in every way. And I've never heard I've never heard anybody who sounds like an enemy, or she doesn't have them. At intermission on September 7, 1943, Hal Stiles interviewed the Wonder Show audience and cast including Wells and Rita Hayworth. 
they were married earlier that day. Himself, Orson the Magnificent, will you step to the microphone for just a moment and tell us, first of all, why are you just walking out on us, so to speak? Walking out on you? Walking out is not a fair way to describe the situation. I'm a man who's just been married. And would you mind uh, telling us uh, uh, who you've been married to? (laughs) There she is. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce to you the lovely, incomparable, the one and only Rita Hayworth, who today became the very blushing and very charming bride of Orson Welles. Rita, will you just say hello? Uh, Hello. (laughs) I'm... (laughs) No. No, wait. I am... uh, I was... No, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. It can't end as quickly as all that. I know I can appreciate that uh, a marriage has taken place, but uh, after all, we uh, we do have some listeners. We want. Uh, what do you think of Orson? Oh, shut What do I think I of my husband? Here. Oh! Uh, <laughs> well, at any rate, uh, this is truly a wonderful show, and I know that you uh, played a very important part in it until uh, Marlene and Dietrich very kindly took your place, but I can appreciate now the reason for this. Uh, there must have been a very, very important reason. Now I want to bring, we just have a moment or two, I want to bring Marlene Dietrich to the microphone and ask her whether or not, uh, well, do you enjoy the part that you've been playing in the show? I love it. Uh-huh. And uh, are you sort of sorry to see it to sort of uh, come to a rather hasty conclusion? Oh, I don't think we were close. Ah, uh-huh. well, that's very good. Austin applauds that. Maybe when he returns from Washington, uh, he will be uh, very happy to uh, see that the thing continues. Personally, I hate to see the show end because it's been a wonderful show, as all of the people brought to the microphone thus far have been able to so very volubly testify. Uh, Marlena, uh, did you, uh, uh, well, uh, I don't know how to say it, but this uh, mind-reading demonstration you gave is really uh, very unusual. Did you uh, sort of, have you been doing things like that all your life? Oh, yes, all my life. Uh-huh. You enjoy doing the work. Yes, I love it too. Uh-huh. Well, just as Orson said, the seventh daughter of a seventh daughter. Now, uh, uh, Orson, before we sign off, and I don't know just how much time we do have left here, we've got time enough, he says. Uh, tell me, what uh, prompted you to, uh, well, uh, present this show? Well, the Mercury is not uh, accomplished at singing and dancing and telling jokes, so we tried to think of something that would hold the attention for an hour and a half or two hours, and this is the best we could do. Magic. It uh, gives us a peg to hang our jokes on and a chance to show uh, the men in service somebody as beautiful as Marlena Dietrich and a, uh, an opportunity for uh, some bright music and a few gags, and that's about it. Due to her studio issues with Columbia, Hayworth kept the marriage a secret until it was too late for Harry Cohn to stop her. Fiery Latin temper? Well, she's half gypsy, you know. She never got mad at me once, but she used to throw the stuff around the house a little bit when she'd think about Harry Cohen. The head. <laughs> the head of the studio. Yes. Yeah. We must remember that he got the biggest funeral that anybody ever had in Hollywood, biggest turnout. Right. And somebody said to Billy Wilder, why are there so many people here at Harry Cohen's funeral? And he said, well, give the people what they want. Wells remarked that the Mercury Wonder Show had been performed for over 48,000 members of the U.S. Armed Forces. They closed up shop two days later on September 9th. Dramatically, I don't think there's any medium better. First of all, it did what television doesn't do. It made people listen. 
and pay attention because as we are talking, the great majority of our public may well be wandering about the room or up to something else. <laughs> but well, if it's on a, if radio, they couldn't follow it at all unless they were really following it. That's true, and the imagination really had to take over. That's why a lot of things on television they could never do as well. For example, I don't think on a television show they could do a horror or mystery type of thing no, as well. No, because your own imagination would do it. Because they can't create those special effects that's in the mind all the time when you hear it. This is the man in black, here again to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. From Hollywood, we bring you a star, Mr. Orson Welles, who this evening begins a four-week engagement as guest of these proceedings. In the interest of prime suspense, Mr. Welles and the producer of this series have scheduled four radio stories, which they feel are particularly distinguished in our chosen field. The first of these is... The most dangerous game by Richard Gunn. Back in 1935, a teenage Orson Welles got an early radio job on the March of Time from William Spear. In late 1943, Spear was at the helm of suspense on CBS. That September 23rd, Welles began a month-long partnership with Spear, starring in four consecutive episodes. come in, and when he does, I'm going to kill him. It's him or me, and I'm going to do my best to make it him. Oh, maybe it sounds crazy to you. I guess it does. It would have sounded crazy to me a few days ago when I was with Whitney on the yacht. I was on a pleasure trip. <laughs> a pleasure trip? How, or I, how could I or anyone realize then the horror and torment I was to go through? How was I to know of Yvonne and the death swamp and the hounds? How was I to know of... Zaroff, think of it. It was only four nights ago that the ship went down. We'd been talking about this island, Ship Trap Island, Whitney said it was called on the charts. I was sleepy and started on down below to turn in. I was mixing myself a nightcap when I looked up and saw it. A tremendous reef racing at us out of the fog. I screamed out a warning, but it was too late. We were right upon it. the explosion hurled me into the blood-warm waters. Terrified at the suddenness and surprise, my stomach weak and sick at the thought of the others. The sea was eddying furiously around the sinking remnants of the ship. And a certain cool-headedness came to me and made me swim desperately away. Or I might not have lived to go through the horror which was soon to come. I struck out to the right in the direction of the island about which Whitney had been telling me. I had no recollection of how long I swam... But all at once I heard the muttering and growling of the sea breaking on the rocky shore. With my remaining strength, I dragged myself from the swirling waters. All in, gasping, my hands raw, I at last reached a flat place at the top. 
I flung myself down at the jungle edge and tumbled headlong into the deepest sleep of my life. When I awoke, I was in a strange place, having no idea how I had done Well, Ivan, our friend seems to be awakening. I... Where, where is this? Where am I? Do not Where's be alarmed, you? my friend. My man Ivan found you out on the cliff. He brought you here to be taken care of. Well, thank God there's life on this island. I hardly believed. Few people do. Yes, you are quite safe here in my castle, Mr. The following Tuesday, he appeared on Bob Hope's NBC Pepsodent show. Thank you. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce one of the real geniuses of the theater, Mr. Orson Welles. There he is, right here. Thank you very much. I presume you're Bob Hope. <laughs> Why, yes, I am. Well, go sit down somewhere. I'll call you if I need you. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. This is my show. I'm supposed to be right here. What do you think Pepsodent is paying me for? Mr. Hope, there are some questions even a genius can't answer. Yeah. <laughs> I'll bet somewhere in his family tree there's an ensign. <laughs> but I want to tell you, Orson, we're very glad to have you with us tonight. I've... I've always wanted to meet you. You know, people say that uh, you resemble me. Yes. Uh, in fact, I'm becoming known as the Bob Hope of this generation. Yeah. <laughs> That's a fine thing to say to the youngest man in this room, mentally. Say, by the way, Orson, what do you do? Well, I'm a producer, director, writer, and actor. Well, what do you do for a living? Uh... Hmm? Say, that. tell me, was that me? <laughs> That's you, yeah. <laughs> Me next. I had that egg all to myself, didn't I? Oh, thank you. Glad you <laughs> Wasn't that cute? I was standing there scrambling that little kid all by myself. <laughs> and I looked at you. I thought you were next, and I followed that kid. I'll fix that for now. Say, they tell me you got an early start in this business, Mr. Wells. Bob, I was so young when I went on the stage, they had to change me more often than the scenery. <laughs> And you're still a pinup boy to me, but tell me. <laughs> tell me, what are you doing these days, Orson? I'm going to England very soon to make a picture. Oh, you're pulling my leg. I wouldn't dream of it, old man. <laughs> At your age, those things come apart. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> well, I am going to England, Bob. I am well, going to England. Tell me, let me know when you're leaving for England, and I'll give you a note to the king. Oh, are you and the king good friends? Good friends. Orson, do you know where I slept in Buckingham Palace? Yes, damp down there, wasn't it? <laughs> well, when you go to England, I suppose you'll do your magician act for the boys over there. Yes, I will, Bob. Well, you know, Orson, I think you're the greatest magician in the world. You really think I'm a great magician? I certainly do. 50,000 bachelors in the country, and you make Rita Hayworth disappear. <laughs> hey, tell me. Tell me. What did you do, pull her out of your sleeve? There is a limit to what you can do with magic, Bob. I couldn't any more pull Rita out of my sleeve than you could pull Mussolini out of your baggy pants. <laughs> or whoever that is hiding in there. Well, where do you keep your butter? Say, but, uh... 
You know, Orson, I'm a little jealous. After all, I was going with Rita first. It was a pretty steady thing. You were going with Rita? Well, I wasn't exactly going with her. I danced with her once at the Hollywood Canteen until the cops made me take off the uniform. <laughs> but you know, before she married you, some gossip was spreading a story around town that Rita was sweet on me. I know, Bob, but I think you went too far when you had it mimeographed and dropped it from airplanes. <laughs> Well, while we're on the subject, Orson, you know, I gave Rita a necklace. Isn't this rather an odd time to bring that up? Well, I want it back, that's all. <laughs> now, don't get excited about it, Bob. After all, how expensive could it have been? Ten Pepsodent tubes strung together. Well, a week's pay is a week's pay. But, Orson, your romance with Rita started when she was in your magic show and you cut her in half, didn't it? Yes, Bob, I knew it was love the first time I saw her. <laughs> Drop the net. <laughs> the first time I saw her. Why do I stand here reading this tripe when I could get a good job at Lockheed? <laughs> well, my agent was going to get me a job there, but I refused to let him eat 10% of my lunch. But tell me, do you actually believe in magic and psychic stuff, Orson? Can you read people's minds? Why, yes, Bob. I might say I'm an amateur mind reader. Well, can you read my mind? Bob, I said amateur, not immature. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, I'll try uh, give me a minute and I'll transform myself into a mystic. <laughs> I am now my real self, Swami Wells. <laughs> I am the great Swami. I see all. I know all. I'm Bob Hope. I smell all, too. <laughs> I will give you a reading. Here, let us sit in front of the crystal ball. Is this your crystal ball? Why has it got two holes drilled in it? On Thursday nights, I go bowling. <laughs> Sit down, Bob. I'll read your future. Now, wait a minute. That ain't a crystal ball. You're reading my future from a grapefruit. Well, that's the one I use for squirts. <laughs> I, uh... <laughs> I can look in a crystal ball and tell you happenings for the future. I can tell you who's going to be in the White House in 1950. You need a crystal ball to see who was going to be in the White House in 1950? Yes. Republican. <laughs> we'll hold a seance. Put the lights out. Ready? We are now entering the spirit world. Can I ask you a question? All right, Hope. Oh, great spirit, are you there? There's someone here who wants to ask you some questions. Okay, but make it snappy. I'm in 1A. <laughs> Hope, you may now speak to the spirit. He is ready to obey your order. Fine. Spirit, I'd like to speak to my old granddad. What was your order? Old granddad. <laughs> Sorry, it's after curfew. Cologne, are you a spirit now? That's right, Hope. I am a spirit who sees all, knows all, past, present, future. I have great psychic powers because the ghosts of the great beyond have made me their lieutenant. J.G. <laughs> Kelowna, why have you got so many screws loose? Well, I don't know, Hope. Yes, there was absenteeism on the assembly line. Kelowna, I don't believe you're in the great beyond at all. Well, don't be silly, Hope. Of course I am. I'm sitting here with Cleopatra on my lap. Kelowna, Cleopatra's been dead for 400 years. She has? Yes. Well, I'll take back my fraternity pin. <laughs> Come over here, Kelowna. Come over here right away. Now, wait a minute. Hope I'm going to perform my greatest trick. You've heard how Orson Welles saws girls in half? Well, I'm going to saw Orson Welles in half. Come here, Orson. Uh, Kelowna, that's my trick. 
You've never done it before. I'm afraid that uh, there might be a slip-up. Quit horsing, Orson. I'll... I'll bet you a thousand dollars I can do it. A thousand dollars. I'll bet. Let's go. Okay. <laughs> oh! <laughs> well, which end should I pay it to? Wells' radio star remained bright, and he was busy. That fall, he was guest on Duffy's Tavern, The Fred Allen Show, Radio Reader's Digest, The Philip Morris Playhouse, Stage Door Canteen, We the People, Inner Sanctum Mysteries, and Command Performance. We thank you so much. All the radio work served as practice. This is Orson Welles just saying hello before the show starts. There's a full moon tonight. February 11th is the anniversary of the day Thomas Alva Edison was born. He invented the incandescent lamp, only to discover years later that Spencer Tracy had beat him to it. (laughs) Welcome to your radio almanac, ladies and gentlemen. At the sign of the flying red horse. On Wednesday, January 26th, 1944, CBS, Mobile Oil, and Orson Welles launched a variety program with comedy, jazz, and a weekly guest star. It would be a true radio almanac. On February 9th, Ann Southern appeared. The Mercury team of veterans like Agnes Moorhead, Hans Conried, and Ray Collins supported. Ladies and gentlemen, Ann Southern! Hello, Ann. Hello, Ann. Hello, Orson. You know, I don't mind telling you I'm scared stiff. Well, scared stiff? Why? Well, aren't you going to saw me in half? Oh, no, the OPA put a stop to that. They said I was wasting too many women. I'm not just a magician, Ann. I'm, I'm a romantic lover, you know. Oh. Of course, I don't believe it, but they, they do say that, compared to me, Sinatra is just a boy scout. Mm. <laughs> he may be a boy scout, but a lot of girl scouts belong to his troop. <laughs> Well, uh, don't get me wrong, Ann. I'm not envious. As a matter of fact, in my next Mercury Theater production, I've been thinking of doing Romeo and Juliet with Frank Sinatra as Romeo. Really? Yes. Can't you just hear him singing on the balcony as Juliet climbs up to him? Orson, I don't want to criticize an old Shakespearean authority like you, but Juliet stands on the balcony and Romeo climbs up to her. I know, but Sinatra would never make it. (laughs) Now, look, Anne, we're doing a scene later, and you'll find out how romantic I am. Well, if we're going to do a scene together, I'd better give you a couple of pointers. Pointers? Yes. Now, let me show you. Now, put your arms around me. My arms around you like this? Uh Uh-huh. Now, say something romantic. Oh, my darling. What's funny about that? Oh, my darling. I love you with an equatorial passion. You ought to see me in Jane Eyre. I love you with an equatorial passion that no thermometer can register. Oh, my darling. Pardon me, Anne. Hello? Oh, hello, dear. What? We're only acting. Of course I don't mean it. Honestly, she was only teaching me something. Well, I know you can. But I, I, but, but... You know I do. I said you know. 
I said, you know I do. I can't say it now, there are people listening. <laughs> I say, I say there are people listening. <laughs> oh, please don't be angry, I'll call you later, goodbye. Who was that? My laundry man. <laughs> oh yes, you've got to be awfully nice to them these days. Now let's go on. You were saying... Ah, yes, darling, I didn't... I didn't uh, I, Oh, yes. You were saying... Thank you for giving it to me again. I'll try it once more. Darling, I've endeavored to conceal a passion who's in it. You should see me in Jane Eyre. I don't do this. <laughs> I've endeavored to conceal a passion whose inner fires are broiling the very soul within me. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. Oh, it says in the script that you will. Uh, hello? Oh, it's okay. I'll tell him. Orson, your laundryman says he's going home to his mother. <laughs> She's always kidding that way. I'll bet. Now, come on, Orson. Make like Sinatra. <laughs> Kiss me. All right, I will. Uh-uh. Orson, who is this character? This is Mr. P. Bristle, the censor. Uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Wells, but you can't kiss Ann Southern like that. Why? You know a better way? <laughs> He's not allowed to kiss anybody that close to a microphone. Why not? Well, the voice is too romantic. Mr. Pre-Bristle, what... Pre-Bristle. Pre-Bristle. Whatever gave you the idea that his voice is romantic? Well, now, just read this letter. Ah, uh, dear sir, whenever Orson Welles speaks, I get goose pimples signed Bella. Bella? What's the address? 602 Beverly Drive. Just as I thought. Bella Lugosi. <laughs> well, I have additional proof. And uh, let me show you. Uh, would you three young ladies please step up on the stage? That's right, right this way. All right, Mr. Wells, say something romantic. You mean, uh, 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 like this? Darling, I love you. <laughs> Orson, pick them up. Are they kidding? You girls don't really think I'm romantic, do you? It's ridiculous, anyway, anyone feeling this way about me. I. Uh, oh, just... you. you send us wealthy. He's a killer! Solid, Jack! You see, I wasn't lying. Now go on, say something romantic. Say something romantic, like, uh, like I adore you. Ah! <laughs> Wellsy Picasso! I can't understand it. That's because you're a man. Thanks. <laughs> Join the club too. Yeah. Just sing the theme song with us here. When we heard Frank Sinatra, we all gave out with yells. Gave out with yells. But we're through with Sinatra. Now we swoon for Orson Welles. For Orson Welles. Our lives were all so you. Like boats without the oars. Without the yours. But now our life's worth living. When he says obediently, yours. But Wells was soon in battle with his sponsor, Mobile Oil. 
and the run was short-lived. The Orson Welles Almanac went off the air after July 19th. March, 1835, Paris, France. Dear Aaron, I have thought long about idea. It is the best way. I accept your proposition. By the time you read letter, I and Raya will be on ship to Quebec. I will bring one pound of my inheritance, rest arriving on ship this summer as we have arranged. We expect a reliable guide to wait for us in Quebec. I will send letter when we reach land in America. Doskoroi Strechi, Countess Sorina Maria Derzinskaya Zubov. Sorina! We must pack, little sister. It is time to go to America. Don't be fooled. Danger is coming. Premiering soon on your favorite podcast app, Burning Gotham, the new scripted audio fiction podcast set in 1835 New York City. Subscribe to this audio feed to learn more or go to burninggotham.com.